This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. A uh, former legal uh, clerk was sentenced to seven years reduced uh, for uh, half time spent after the crash that killed a 44-year-old father. Uh, she was sentenced for drunk driving and had had just one month before received a one-year driving ban for speeding with double the legal limit of alcohol. So she had already uh, been arrested for this and charged and and convicted and had lost her license for a year and then uh, of course got into this horrific accident she also glorified drunk driving online and on social or on social media uh, is the message of don't drink and drive truly getting through to people I'm not sure this is an issue of drinking and driving as much as it is an issue about an extremely careless entitled individual who has just simply lost control and the collateral damage of that is drinking and driving and I'm sure there's other aspects of her life that are equally as harmful uh, with that being said, let's bring in Joseph Newberger, criminal lawyer with Newberger Partners LLP and on the line with us now. Hello, Joseph. How are you today? I'm great. How are you? Good. Thank you for taking the time to join us. We always appreciate it when you do. Uh, this case seems a little unusual, Joseph, in the sense that uh, this person almost was flaunting drinking and driving. Have you ever encountered or seen anything like that before? No, it really is unusual. And you're right. Uh, from what I've read, it seems that this person was certainly flaunting uh, drinking and driving and what is generally a reckless way of living. And I think you hit it on the point where you said there's probably other aspects of this person's life that's pretty much out of control as well. So this is a really unusual set of facts, which are quite aggravating considering the, the conduct which she's been sentenced for. So how much would uh, these this sort of behavior or, you know, postings on social media, which we'll talk about in a sec, because that to me is just so asinine, it's beyond belief to, you know, to uh, display your, uh, your stupidity online. <laughs> yeah. uh, that being said, when you have someone like this who instead of is showing remorse or or, or trying to learn something here uh, is, is sort of, you know, um, flashing in the face of, of the law. How does a judge look at that? I mean, do you get extra for that? Um, you, you can. I mean, it's certainly an aggravating factor. I mean, if I was the defense lawyer on the case, I, I might have had a forensic psychiatric assessment done because, you know, it reaches a level of complete stupidity to flaunt this on social media, and you have to wonder what else is wrong with this person. But... If a judge is looking at a, an individual who has been flaunting the law and uh, purposely is drinking and driving on a regular and consistent basis, that is very much an aggravating factor because this accident and the uh, tragic death as a result of it was really something that was just a matter of time. This was a person who was on a, a crash course uh, to harm somebody else. So it is an extremely aggravating factor. And, and also in this case, you look at how she behaved after the accident occurred as well. Very egregious, very aggravating factors, which I think resulted in the sentence that the court handed down. Very odd that she happens to be a paralegal. What do you read into that? Well, or, 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 you know, is that, I mean, all walks of life, right? It is. It's all walks of life, and it depends what you practice. But, you know, for example, if you're a criminal lawyer, and it can't be an aggravating factor, but unfortunately we see this, you know, on a, on a daily basis where people are calling us about these types of cases and impaired causing death, and you're very attuned to the statistics and, and the damage that it causes. So you would expect somebody, um, you know, even like a doctor as well, you know, to comport yourself in a certain way. But 
that's not really the factor, but she clearly ignored it. And, and I think, again, it's where you're looking at somebody's overall personality construct is, is quite troubled. So uh, very, very bad behavior, very bad conduct. And uh, unfortunately, it was something that just seemed destined to happen. Uh, would what would the judge reaction be? What would the judge's reaction be to her background, to to what she does do? I mean, obviously, she would be aware of this sort of thing simply because of what she does. Uh, how, yeah. How would yeah, he, How would he I interpret mean, that? I mean, I think the judge would just mention in passing. Um, there's a lot of education and a lot of information out about the, the dangers of drinking and driving that we are all really in the know about how horrific. Uh, the results can be from from uh, reckless behavior where where uh, you're driving over the legal limit. So I think the judge would just mention the fact that uh, she works within the legal profession, maybe in passing. It's not a factor that would enhance the the sentence itself. The the death of the individual, the driving in question, the speeding, the amount of alcohol, and then the prior flaunting of drinking and driving with the prior history of it, I think, are all the very significant factors that came into play for the global sentence of seven years. What are your thoughts on the sentence? It's a strong sentence. Um, We've seen now generally over the last few years an increase in sentencing for impaired causing death. We've reached uh, the pinnacle now with the Muzo decision, which was essentially a global sentence of 10 years. And we have seen a gradual increase because the difficulty is the public um, may not be getting the message and we're still seeing uh, deaths occurring because of drinking and driving. So a seven-year sentence, I think, uh, in this case, is, is a high sentence, which uh, addresses the aggravating factors and the extreme harm done to the victim's family. Uh, not just the victim, but including the, the, the tragedy that unfolds for the family after the fact. Uh, Joseph, how do other countries, other places in the world handle this? Are we on par with our penalties and, and limits and this sort of thing? We are. Um, we are. I mean, the United States uh, has sentencing is similar there. I mean, I know we hear terms of vehicular homicide and other issues like that, but uh, impaired causing death may attract sometimes uh, slightly higher sentences in the United States, but um, we're not that far off. We're, we're, we're probably now harsher than certain uh, cases in Europe, um, and certainly we're on par with Australia as well, and in fact, maybe uh, more severe than Australia. So I think we are getting um, amongst the you know uh, democratic countries, we're certainly reaching a higher level than most. The United States hits much harder than we do, but we're not far off from them. Uh, bad behavior is one thing, and um, uh, but posting it on social media the way she did, almost bragging, about this sort of thing. Do, do people realize the impact that social media has and, and when you're putting images or things like this up there that uh, this can often come back to haunt you, not only in, in something like this, but whether it's a job opportunity or what have you? Yeah, I, I know it's incredibly hard to believe that somebody who is educated enough to be a clerk and a paralegal would actually do this type of behavior because you expect this maybe from a 15 or 16-year-old who's extremely immature and not paying attention. But I see it from time and time in my cases that people are posting all sorts of things on social media, um, and it has a direct impact on cases that I'm dealing with. And uh, they're they're not appreciating, I think, that you absolutely lose your anonymity. It's there for life. It can be used against you. Um, And even if it's not something involved in a criminal case, whatever you're posting, if it's reckless behavior and you're applying for a job, and you're taking pictures of yourself with, uh, you know, beer cans 
chugging it back with friends. You know, a future employer, if they do social media searches, come up with this, might go, well, this is not a responsible individual that we want to have part of our team. People are not getting it, um, and it's extremely dangerous. The, the vast majority of individuals use social media in a responsible way, but we do see these aberrations, and, and frankly, I see it quite often, and it is shocking. And you have to think that, you know, in this case, whether it involves a criminal investigation or either whether it's something as simple as a job interview, they're going to do a search on you. I mean, it just seems common sense, doesn't it? Absolutely. In fact, in every criminal case that I get, when I'm doing a defense investigation, we do a social media search. Mm-hmm. And and we are looking at postings on all sorts of, if, if we're getting access, uh, all sorts of social media outlets for the individual because it tells us an awful lot about them. And um, uh, there's a lot out there that you can gain. So people should be aware of that. And it is now regularly used. I mean, if you're going to somebody who is a, uh, you know, a future employer of significance, like a bank, a financial institution, healthcare system, uh, teaching, for example, I, I think most prospects are going to have their social media postings uh, scrutinized. Uh, are there limitations, or should there be, as to what you can use and cannot use in situations like this, whether it's an attorney or whether it is a prospective employer? Um, I think whatever you post publicly is is free game. I yeah. mean, I think that's your decision. You give up your right to privacy if you're now posting it publicly. I mean, I'm not great with social media myself, but if you have a Facebook and you close it off just to your friends, that's not out there to the public. But if, if you are making it available to the public at large, mm-hmm. um, then you have given up your anonymity, you've given up your privacy, and I think that it is completely correct for police who are investigating to look at this and use it, or for future employers to do it, because you need to do your due diligence. You need to know who you're hiring in certain cases, especially if it's a difficult job or if you're dealing with people's finances in a financial industry. You want to know you're hiring somebody who is a responsible individual who won't be a difficulty later on uh, with, you know, misappropriating funds or something else. So I think it's it's fair game. Uh, you talked earlier that this was a, uh, a heavier sentence than normal, but they are or seem to be getting a bit heavier since the Musso yep. case. Does this sentence resonate? Is this the sort of thing that gets people to stand up and take note? It really should. Uh, I mean, you know, people might look at it and go, well, look at her behavior and, and, and what she was posting. But, I, I mean, it's, seven years is very serious. I mean, this is a young young lady who, you know, but for her own personal circumstances, could have had a very successful uh, life ahead of her. And um, not only did she ruin a family's life and, and killed somebody, she's now ruined her life as well. Yeah. And a seven-year sentence is a very serious sentence. She's going to be serving some significant time in jail, and it is not a friendly environment, and uh, it is very serious. So I think it should... Uh, have a deterrent factor, but as you know, as I've said before in many forums, when speaking or writing on the topic, you know the, the length of the sentence itself necessarily doesn't act as a deterrent because people, most people, when they get in their cars after having a few drinks, aren't out there to harm anybody, and they may not be cognizant of the fact that they are over the legal limit. And so I think we all have to be careful, regardless of the sentence, to make sure that if we are drinking and driving, we find an alternative way of getting home. There seems to be more to learn from this scenario, though, doesn't there, Joseph? I mean, not only about the drinking and driving aspect, but the posting of such a behavior on social media and just the general irresponsibility. It seems like Look, entitlement almost. It does. But, you know, in, in a civil society, and I think we live in Canada, which I, I, I say we have a wonderful country and a wonderful uh, 
culture and society here that you know we all want to be responsible citizens and we all want to be responsible towards our friends and neighbors and and people who who are living alongside of us so we all have to exercise a, a degree of responsibility towards ourselves and towards others this demonstrates a lack of responsibility towards the health and safety of others if you are routinely drinking and you're posting that you're delighted that you're over the legal limit and you haven't been caught by ride you are uh... Uh, conducting your life in a reckless manner with a disregard for the safety of others. And that is something where we all should, you know, try and behave in a civilized manner where we're looking out for everybody's interests, not just our own, because that protects ourselves and our families. Joseph Newberger has been with us, criminal lawyer with Newberger and Partners, LLP. Joseph, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Have a great day. You too. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. All right, uh, another tragic story about a soldier in the Canadian Armed Forces who uh, appears uh, not to have received the help that he greatly needed. Uh, And, of course, uh, a terrible tragedy in rural Nova Scotia. As uh, on Tuesday, four people found dead in uh, a home in rural Nova Scotia. The victims identified as a 33-year-old military veteran, Lionel Desmond, his wife, Shannon, 31, their 10-year-old daughter, as well as his mother, who was 52 years of age. Um, A family member said that uh, he was a veteran who had recently served in Afghanistan and had been seeking treatment for post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, At least 54 Canadian military members have taken their own lives since 2014, including 15 just last year. According to one estimate, an advocate say Ottawa is not doing enough in these life or death situations. Uh, It seemed, uh, although this this, uh, uh, member was receiving some help, he had looked for some just prior to this and was unable to receive that. We'll find out uh, if there's any truth to that or not. Joining us now is Michael Blaze, president and founder of the Canadian Veterans Advocacy, and he is with us now. Hello, Michael. How are you today? I am well. I wish I was here under more, less grim circumstances. Michael, it seems we're hearing about this uh, too much, whether it's in something as tragic as this case or, or, or just somebody trying to get help who can't get it. What can you tell us about this case? Uh, he had been receiving help, I understand, but was not able to get it when he needed it immediately. Was that the issue here? Oh, it's a tragic case. You know, I mean, uh, we have to put it in perspective, first of all, before, before anyone casts judgment. That's for certain. And the reality is, is that this young man served in Afghanistan, you know, in a frontline regiment, the Royal Canadian Regiment. And in 2007, it was a vicious deployment. I mean, he had lost friends, many. He had borne witness to, to so many being wounded, either experiencing physical or mental trauma. And most importantly, you know, the impact on the mind when you were called to kill, where you were at the basic level of survival, at a level of mental trauma that is never, never experienced within the domestic service or within Canada. And this was a good thing. God help us if it were. But the reality was that the wound was identified. He, he, he went through a process with the Joint Personnel Support Unit that seemed to be effective, I mean, uh, and then, unfortunately, within that two-year zone where so many veterans have, have sadly taken their life, something went astray. You know, whether it was uh, care and transition, which I believe it is after listening to a sister on a radio interview this morning, 
where, where, where he did reach out, and it was recent, and, and this issue was, was since he returned from Afghanistan, where he turned into a loving, compassionate father and husband to this person that they didn't know anymore. The impact was severe. And yes, there was care. There was four months where he was sent to Montreal to St. Anne's, but clearly it wasn't enough. And clearly there wasn't enough follow back. And clearly there's not enough initiative on preventing this issue. Because I would remind your, your listeners that it was last year at this time we were speaking about another murder suicide that occurred in Toronto over the holidays where, where, where a pregnant woman was killed and people jumped off balconies. You know, what, what did we learn? Nothing. Hmm. Can 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 this treatment ever end? I mean, is it not uh, uh, ongoing? Of course, um, it can end, but it takes a dedicated commitment. And you know, I mean, I, I would go back to the interview with your sister, where she said, you know, I mean, I I I'm empathic with, for these doctors and psychologists and psychiatrists in local communities that these men and women are isolating to, because the reality of the situation is they're not trained in war and trauma. And as I explained earlier, when, when that heightened level of trauma is present, where it's never, never, never uh, in Canada's society, and it's not taught at that level at their universities, they're, you know, when the doctor looked Buddy in the eye and said, I don't know what to do for you. Well, that was an honest assessment. Yeah. And that is where we must start. Yeah. You know, we must have coordination between... You know, I, I, I'm on the Mental ed, uh, Health Advisory, for example, you know, the, the president of the National Psychiatrist, the National Psychologist Association there. There are men and women present who could have a great impact on what is transpiring. That, that with the help of veterans on the advisory, we could formulate a military-specific, a trauma-orientated program that actually works. But we're not being accorded either the time or the resources to make this happen. And it sickens me, frankly, because, you know, I mean, here we are, uh, you know, January 5th. We're talking about a murder-suicide. What we're not talking about is the two veteran suicides that I know that occurred in, within the community uh, over the Christmas period or the many others that have taken their lives over the last year that are not on the recorded dial or a record where, where, where we're not learning, where we're not understanding what, what's making this happen, where we can't. We can't provide relief. How does the U.S. or Europe handle this? Well, there's growing awareness across the board. I, I mean, I believe me, you know, I'm worried about this issue since an incident happened on the, uh, in Fort Hood and the Americas. Uh, you know, I mean, there was a, whoa, brutal. And there's been many more that followed in America and several within the Australian sphere and, and, and Britain that could have been catastrophic. That was, was you know, I mean, uh, ended one way or another before another life was taken. But we have to recognize that, uh, you know, yes, three innocent lives were taken. And yes, we have to understand that war trauma cannot be compared to any civilian component and we must understand that it's Veterans Affairs Canada. It's Minister Hare's sacred obligation to address this issue, not, not as something that is average within the or comparable to what transpires in, in the civilian population, but with the reality that we expose these men and women to trauma, and we have an obligation to provide immediate, 
effective resources the moment they step forward with a declared wound. And if that costs money, well, so be it, Minister. That's the nature of the beast when you send men and women to war, because war is trauma. Nobody escapes. And this certainly isn't about being too proud for treatment, because he was seeking out treatment. Oh, yes. And then there's been so many, many others. And then when they found treatment, you know, the treatment proved effective. Not to anyone's fault. This is emerging science. And again, this is why it's so important that at the ministerial, at Veterans Affairs level, that we unite behind this emerging science, that we identify programs that we will work that we understand there must be an inpatient facility for people like Corporal Desmond. When they reached out, instead of being told, I don't know what to do, there was an immediate recourse. Yes, there's something you can do. You can phone Veterans Affairs Canada. And within 24 hours, we would have this man placed at a military-orientated veterans, a veterans-orientated facility wherein the focus is on military trauma, where we're not going to put them in with... With, with, with the civilian component at Bellwood or Homewood, where, where there's a criminal element present, where there's a psychiatric disorder present that's not related to war trauma. No, we're going to put them in a safe, comfortable environment, and we're going to heal them. But this isn't happening. This is where the problem lies. You talked about uh, emerging science and, and how everyone's trying to learn about this as they go. Talk about old, so old soldiers versus new. How did they deal with this? How did this? How how would people deal with this World War Two? They drank. Yeah. You know, or they did drugs that we didn't know about at the time, or they resorted to gambling, or or sex, or or a dozen other uh, dangerous addictions that eventually, you know, ruined their lives. May not have ended up in suicide, but often led onto the streets. I mean, look at, look at the homeless problem we have in this nation now. The average age is between 54 and 56, not 20, 30, 40, 50 and 56. There's wounds here present that were accrued in former Yugoslavia and Rwanda and Somalia and various other places of high-intensity operations, wherein, you know, at that time we ignored that. You know, you can't have shell shock because there was no shells. Well, that's, that's crap. We know that now. We know that bearing witness to genocide, bearing witness to people chopping or, or, or the worst, the grim aftermath of genocide, you know, when we, when we put Canadians' people where there's kids with minus limbs and heads and women and grossly mutilated, dozens upon dozens, that affects the mind. War affects the mind. And, and it's important that this nation understands that when our men and women serve, when they come back, they need our compassion, just like Mr. Or Corporal Desmond's family needs compassion now, just like uh, everyone involved in this needs compassion, those who served with them. You know, I, 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 I talked to a couple of guys or seen what they were saying this morning on Facebook. They served with This is so uncharacteristic, inexplicable. That's what everyone's saying. It's inexplicable. Well, it is explainable. It's war trauma, and it's a nation's failure, failure to intervene in time to save a life, and in this case, three more innocent lives. You were talking about what life is like on the front line in, you know, in the, in the most brutal, uh, uh, significant way that, that these battles are, are, are fought. How can 
how can anyone experience something like that and not be affected? How can anyone go through that and, and, and not in some way be affected? Well, no one can. And, and, you know, there was a time we had this uh, suck it up buttercup attitude, you know, yeah. which was perpetuated even on reservists, you know, reservists with uh, not the same level of training reserve or as regular force were, were thrown into the breach on so many operations, then returned to our our communities without the appropriate hair that they needed. And when they did reach forward, you know, it was kind of shrugged up. Oh, you'll, you'll get over it next week or, you know, no, no, no. It doesn't happen that way. Mental trauma sustained in wars like a sliver. And if you don't get that sliver out of your body at one point in time in your life, it's going to fester. And it's going to fester to blood poisoning and other life-threatening issues that need professional help to resolve and the problem is now we do not have that level of professional help to help these guys resolve there has to be a, in, a mission specific in facility uh, a place where veterans affairs can put people like corporal desmond valiant veterans veterans who have been exposed multiple times it's not just once it's every hour, for hours upon hours. It's sleeping in the back of an APC and waking up to it the next morning, and it goes on for months upon months on end. Canadians must understand how high intensity the nation's, or combat in general, and modern is today. And the fact that we did, we did put these men and women in harm's way. We exposed them to, to the risk of an IED explosion at the next step. You know, we exposed them to be blown up by some guy in a suicide uh, car bomb, as what happened to Corporal Albert Storm down, down, down here in Niagara. My friend Bobby Gerard, who I served with, died in that incident. We exposed them to war. Now, we have an obligation, and so does the Minister of Veterans Affairs, and frankly, the Deputy Minister, General Natanchuk, former CDS, an obligation, an obligation to recognize this is not average Canadian civilian problems we're dealing with, that these men and women have been war traumatized, and that only specific, you know, and dedicated efforts to deal with war trauma will be successful. Uh, Michael, is it the trip home? Is it trying to come back and blend in with normal civilian, uh, the normal civilian population? Is that what triggers this? What do we know anything more about what does actually trigger it and, and, and why some can do it and some can't? Well, I think, you know, I mean, every, well, let's face it, everyone's different and everyone, you know, not everyone's exposed to the same level of trauma on a combat mission, for example. Some people, by definition, due to their, uh, you know, their, their rank and whatever, are not as exposed to a corporal or private who's been on a frontline battalion and who's been advancing to contact for the last three weeks or four weeks straight. And it's the young fellows who, and I, you know, I would ask anywhere, close your eyes, you know, here you are, you're in Afghanistan, you're in former Rwanda, you're in former Yugoslavia, there's blood, there's guts, there's everything. Everything you smell smells like blood, oil, sweat, scents you've never experienced in your life, and there's no escape, every breath, and everywhere you look, there's no escape. It's not normal. There's nothing that you can compare that to in your life. Now compound that with the with the actual thought and look in your heart and say, "Can I kill somebody? Can I can I just shoot? Can I? Will I hesitate? Will will someone die because I hesitated? You know, is it a woman? Is it a man? Is it a kid? If I both throw, 
all these things inflict severe trauma. And particularly when you're thinking like that, and all of a sudden incoming starts coming in, and your buddies and legs start losing arms and legs around you, and not only are you fighting back, you're trying to keep them alive by applying tourniquets and, and calling medics and trying, trying, trying so hard to save someone that's died. Put that in your mind. And, and try to think where you would turn to get help. Well, right now there's nowhere, and that's the problem. We have to create that safe haven. We have to bring the professionals within this nation under one roof with the leadership of the Minister of Veterans Affairs and General Natinchik to ensure expedient action is done, that the resources are applied, that they, who cares how many meetings it takes to go to Ottawa, fund it. Who, who cares what resources, what we need? Make them happen, because the consequential reflects are catastrophic and every time this nation loses one of its sons its daughters we lose a little bit more of the spirit that we once were hmm. how do you think government will react to this latest incident michael i hope they're shocked i hope they're all sitting in ottawa looking at each other you know stunned what can we do because the time ladies and gentlemen ministers and mr prime minister is now it should have been last year when uh, Corporal G- or Robert Gebling uh, uh, was the first incident of murder-suicide, but it wasn't. Well, it damn well better be this time, because we're going to fight to ensure that this remains an issue until they do the right thing by our men and women in uniform. And, Michael, your, your thoughts, your solution, there needs to be one sort of universal vets hospital where these, all these men and women can go and recover with each other, with people who are professionally trained to deal with men and women who have been on the battlefield. Absolutely. But that should be the last resort. Like, as I said, listen, there's different levels of trauma. You know, our first effort should be to reach out. The vet department's got to reach out to the psychologists and the psychiatrists who are teach who are treating these men and women when they come to their communities because they don't learn about war trauma through their through their studies and and there has to be a dedicated effort to teach them about military culture to teach them how difficult it's going to be to have this person trust you and how to build that trust up and i you know i I mean it's not a matter of what we can't do anything and and there's there must be a way of uniting all our principles together that if you can't do anything or I don't know what to do, I should be able to get on Facebook within my respective psychologists, psychiatrists, and talk to somebody within that organization that does and bring them into the treatment plan. You know, even if it takes two or three or four psychologists and a psychiatrist, so be it. Let us do it. You know, but it escalates. And there are times when that cycle of despair is, is, has taken over, that the wound is deep. It's raw. It's festering. And, uh, you know, sometimes the drugs that we've accorded to treat that festering wound may be misdiagnosed for, or, or not, not the chosen of the cocktail. And there are adverse side effects that destroy the family, that drive addictions, that, that make people act in what we call inexplicable manners, such as what transpired last week. But we can make a difference. And I, and I say that... Because uh, on the third level, it has to be community acknowledged. There's no stigma here. We sent them to war. And a kind word at the coffee shop, if you knew someone deployed, a little thank you for your service, can I help? That goes a long, long way. Uh, 
how should these situations make us feel about combat? Should we look at this and reevaluate whether we should be doing this or not? Or is this not a choice? This is just life and war is a part of it. Uh, we need to have soldiers like this. We just have to look after them better. Absolutely, we should be looking at it. We're a nation. Our soldiers, Canada's son and daughters, define who what we are as defined by the objectives the Parliament sets before us. Now, we've always been a nation proud and free because of the sacrifice of men and women since Confederation and before. And the reality is that for many, many generations, the nation fulfilled the sacred obligation. You know, I mean, they understood that war was trauma. They, they, had, they had how many hospitals after World War I and II? The last one just closing now in St. Anne's in Montreal, specifically to deal with the issues that were war and military related. Well, you know, over the last decade or so, the government lost the governments, lost their way. They downsized. They got rid of the hospitals, despite the fact that, you know, we have wonderful facilities in Toronto, London, uh, Halifax, and, and Montreal that, that, that were being very effective in providing... And they use the guys that, well, all the guys from World War II and Korea are dying. We don't need the beds. Well, that's bullshit. Yeah. We need the beds. Evidence is proving that we need the beds. And we have to understand that we as a nation have to cost those beds, that we have to cost the effects of war before we, uh, we send our men and women into a war or to a peacekeeping mission. You know, I, I, I'm cognizant of Colonel Pat Stogren, the former, uh, you know, in his book, he says, well, they never cost-estimated the consequences of the Afghanistan war. They didn't realize there'd be so many casualties. They didn't realize there'd be so many fatalities. They didn't realize there'd be so many Memorial Cross mothers, fathers, sisters, and family members. But there was. And they haven't changed their tune since then. And that's where the reform has to go. It's a complete mindset. And it starts with the nation, and it ends with the Prime Minister of Canada fulfilling his bloody sacred obligation. Michael Blaze has been with us, President and Founder of the Canadian Veterans Advocacy. Michael, keep up the fight. Good luck. All right, brother. Thank, Thank you. you. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. All right, the Tory leadership candidate race uh, continues. There's a whole swack of, of candidates uh, that are uh, signed up, Lisa Raitt being one of them, and certainly one of the more qualified uh, candidates. But it seems that candidates such as Kelly Leach or even Kevin O'Leary, who really isn't even a candidate yet. Well, he isn't a candidate yet. He hasn't uh, declared himself a candidate anyway, uh, other than doing the preliminary groundwork and, and um, making a lot of noise. He hasn't officially jumped into the race. But it seems that other people are uh, getting the headlines, and uh, Lisa Raitt thinks in a way that is not beneficial to the rest of the party, and that if the Kevin O'Leary's or the Kelly Leach's of the world get in, that uh, the conservatives will be sitting on the sidelines for the next... Next uh, decade or so. So as a result, she has launched a website. And the website is uh, basically an anti-Kelly Leach and Kevin O'Leary uh, website and painting them both as uh, Donald Trump uh, kind of uh, characters. And this is not the sort of thing we need in Canada. To talk more about all of this, Nor El Kadri is with us, professor at the Telfer School of Management, University of Ottawa, and is with us now. Hello, Nor. How are you today? I'm very well. How are you, Scott? I'm doing well. Thank you for taking the time to join us. Happy New Year. We appreciate this. 
Happy New Year to you too. Nor uh, obviously uh, this uh, this uh, this candidacy, this race uh, for the leadership of the Progressive Conservatives uh, has a, a vast amount of candidates. It appears at this time, uh, and not many seem to be making a lot of noise, other than of course uh, the ones that we were talking about, Kel- uh, Kelly Leach and Kevin O'Leary. But for perhaps all the wrong reasons that the Conservative Party would like. Now Lisa Raitt has launched a website. Uh, is this going to hinder or help her chances and those of the Conservative Party? Um, I believe those are desperate uh, uh, attempts uh, on behalf of Lisa Wright and, uh, and many others uh, who, who go and, and attack uh, the right-wingers in their party. I mean, the Conservative Party is uh, a party that has too many views, and uh, we've seen those views coming from the center to, uh, to, to the right. And uh, people like Kevin O'Leary and Kelly Leach, um, they have uh, very right-wing views, um, ultra-right uh, views, and definitely they don't bow well with uh, with many of the uh, I mean, progressive conservative aspects of, of the party. Uh, some people like uh, Lisa Riot uh, will uh, will see uh, threats uh, with people like. Uh, uh, Kevin O'Leary coming into the race because uh, he will uh, be going into her base. Uh, especially that uh, Maxime Bernier is doing very well in Quebec and many places around the country. And any serious candidate uh, would want to have um, some of the other English-speaking candidates drop out the race rather than come and divide the vote uh, in, uh, uh, in, into into slower pieces or smaller smaller pieces that will uh, lower their chances of winning the race. Uh, Will this have the opposite effect by uh, condemning the Kelly Leaches and the and the Kevin O'Leary's of the party? uh, Will it have the opposite effect? Will it draw more attention to them? And and as a result, there'll be a backlash for her. It will be a backlash for her. Any negative uh, side of politics will, uh, will will be bad for whoever initiates that. And um, especially in Canada, I mean, this is not the United States. We're not used to attack uh, at politics. And, and taking aim on um, two other candidates, uh, uh, this is going to make sure that they are going to get back to here. Uh, they're going to get back at here, and when uh, that's going to create animosity, and then this is good news for the opposition later on. Uh, so uh, definitely, it could it could backfire, and uh, those types of that, even if uh, Kellich and uh, Kevin O'Leary uh, harbor uh, right wing po- ideas or policies, um, she shouldn't be taking aim at them in uh, in such a, an obvious manner starting a website and, and, and going after them in, uh, uh, in the open. So you think this just drags the whole party down? It drags the whole party down. There are some people who distance themselves from that, um, and I am sensing people like Maxime Bernier are, are laughing now. Hmm. Why do you think so? Because uh, he's um, running um, a very strong campaign. He's uh, very strong in Quebec, and as you know, in this in this campaign, uh, every every riding has uh, has equal uh, uh, level of vote. Or uh, and um, Ontario and Quebec are so important to this uh, to, to this race. We have too many candidates from Ontario. Uh, but he's um, he's one of two candidates, and he's mainly the, uh, getting the the lion's piece uh, 
Well, Alliance share in, in the Quebec uh, the Quebec race. People like Kevin O'Leary coming into the race will probably go in, uh, into his opponent's bags to take some more, more votes. Uh, and if he distances himself, uh, he focuses on policy uh, like what he, he has been doing. He's taking aim at uh, Trudeau. He says he's going to win the race and he's going to defeat Trudeau in 2019. Um, it uh, just bodes well for him uh, as opposed to those people who are uh, hung in internal politics. What does this do for Lisa Raitt? How will this help her? I don't. Um, this will give her some buzz. That um, um, so some people who are uh, anti-Trump, anti-anti-O'Leary, anti-Kellyich uh, 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 might come to their campaign from from other uh, campaigns. So um, people like uh, Chris Alexander or Michael Chong or. Uh, some of the moderate votes, uh, they would, would probably uh, lose uh, lose some base to, to lose a riot in that. Uh, I can certainly see the animosity around uh, Kelly Leach and how that would be an easy target, especially considering her past history with, with Harper and such and, and what her positions were then. But Kevin O'Leary seems not to come with the baggage that Donald Trump uh, comes with in the sense that you know he he doesn't he, he doesn't seem to be set on pretty much insulting everybody uh, in the country. Uh, is it fair to compare o- O'Leary to Trump? Uh, it is not uh, fair to compare them uh, to Trump, but he's still early in the race. I mean, uh, we didn't hear uh, much about Trump in the media until he was running uh, a strong campaign in. Uh, uh, in, in the primaries. And uh, I think it's going to be the same for O'Leary because he's still not in the race yet. He's, he's still on the margins of the race. I think he's still waiting until the French debate uh, on the 17th of January and where uh, he avoids that because he's not a bilingual candidate and he would probably jump into into the race. And it's only then we will try to treat him as a serious candidate if he picks uh, up, up steam. But uh, it all goes down to memberships. If he's not selling memberships, uh, if he's not going to be a threat to, to other candidates, um, they will know the numbers and they will um, they will leave him uh, talking alone. But uh, once he um, becomes a candidate, if he's serious in terms of his numbers and memberships and organization and money, then uh, people will start taking aim at him and then they will start dig all the baggage for him. Uh, he seems to be staying away from controversy, while Trump, obviously, even after the election, is still tweeting controversial things. Um, do you think that bodes well for O'Leary at all? Um, yes, but um, you said that. I mean, the comparison is not uh, one-to-one with between Trump and, uh, and O'Leary. The comparison yeah. is based on uh, the notions of policy and the idea of uh, right-wing politics. Obviously, but Trump uh, has a different uh, approach to that. He's straight, aggressive, no diplomacy at all. Uh, Kevin O'Leary um, has been more of a uh, uh, kind of a backroom deal business business person with uh, um, uh, with with no uh, uh, I mean front attacks on on opponents. And that uh, that bodes well for O'Leary if we want to compare him to Leach or or Trump. 
with Lisa Raitt doing what she's doing now and, you know, creating a website saying that these two are bad for the party and, and all this will be used for is to drag the uh, be used by the opposition to drag the party down. Is she better to hit this head on the way she is as opposed to, you know, just letting it sort of burn itself out and, you know, sweep the sweep that aspect of the party under the rug. Are you better to, you know, hey, let's call this what it is and stand up against it, or let's just quiet all this stuff down and move on once these people are out of the limelight and the leadership race is over? History shows that uh, those types of attack ads uh, don't work well for the party, especially if uh, any of those candidates wins. I mean, that reminds me of Michael Ignatieff attacking Stephen Dion and, and then Stephen Harper using that in all attack acts that that's what Michael Ignatieff spoke about to them beyond in uh, in, the, uh, in the nominations race for uh, for the leadership of the Liberal Party, and uh, those types of things could happen in the uh, in the in the Conservative Party too. Any candidate who attacks others is they're going to be attacked back at them, and if any one of them wins, this is just uh, ammunition for the for the opposition uh, who runs against them, whether it is the NDP or uh, or the Liberal Party and the Greens and in uh, in a federal election, so they have to think um, a little beyond uh, May twenty seventh when they elect uh, a candidate uh, if they want to be serious about uh, um, uh, proposing a, a legitimate government uh, plan it, for, uh, for the country. It seemed uh, for several weeks after uh, the U.S. election, everyone was trying to figure out exactly how all of this uh, happened, and now. Um, as things have settled down, uh, we're certainly hearing more and more about how this is less about the alt-right and less about racism and, and more about uh, the silent majority middle class just uh, upset with with the status quo. It, it was almost an anti-establishment or or protest vote, and, and they're willing to put anyone in uh, just to get you know the status quo out, so to speak. Do you do you feel that sort of uh, resentment in Canada at all? Do you feel that that's brewing, especially here in uh, Ontario? I, I don't see uh, see that because the establishment was mainly led by Stephen Harper, and Stephen Harper is out now. Mm-hmm. And uh, many of the people who are, uh, even those who were ministers with Stephen Harper, they were distancing uh, themselves uh, from uh, from Stephen Harper. Like I mean. Uh, uh, I've heard um, Patrick uh, Brown in, in Ontario, who was an MP with Stephen Harper for nine years, that is, he's running a campaign completely different from Stephen Harper. He's distancing himself from Stephen Harper and his policies in terms of his outreach, in terms of how occupant. And similarly, I, I see many, many people in the conservative leadership that have distanced themselves from Stephen Harper. Some people, like Kelly Leach, um, is still in, in, in that camp. Some people like Kevin O'Leary will bring uh, policies that are very similar to those of Stephen Harper in, in terms of their uh, mentality so far and what they have uh, talked about. Um, I would say the anti-establishment uh, politics doesn't have much to, to play in uh, uh, in the conservative uh, party. What about, uh, provi- the, what about provincially? Uh, what about provincially? Mm-hmm. You know, for example, with the wind government in Ontario, oh, we're uh, we're seeing anti-wind movements um, winning a lot, and the pragmatism of Patrick Brown, uh, uh, I think, is paying off. 
mm. uh, where we're going to see him leading in uh, in the polls. And, and I, uh, the way that I've seen the win government trying to recover from this over the last six months, I don't see that there is a light at the tunnel for them. Um, Patrick Brown is, is leading. Uh, getting back to uh, Kevin O'Leary, uh, obviously doesn't speak French. Can he, he says that he can still identify with uh, people in Quebec and especially the millennials that will understand his message either way. How important is it that he does speak French? Uh, it is absolutely very important in Quebec. Quebec has 78 uh, writings. Um, aside from the um, 15, 20 writings in the Montreal and around that area and the Ottawa region, uh, French is French is essentially in more than fifty of the other writings, and uh, he must speak French in if he wants to make any inroads into, uh, especially that there are two Quebec natives that are running in this race, and um, I believe they're gonna get the uh, majority of the of the vote uh, with uh, with Maxime Bernier making much better inroads than Stephen Blaney. Um, Stephen Blaney had some right-wing views very similar to those of uh, Kevin O'Leary, and uh, I don't think um, um, within the Quebec uh, arena, Kevin O'Leary is going to be able to skate uh, with those. Those who are right-wingers were going to go to Stephen Blaney. Those who are progressive conservatives, they're going to go with uh, Maxime Bernier. And, mm. of course, there are many other candidates that might bow, uh, might get a little piece of the pie. But Kevin O'Leary, I think, is going to be shut out except for very limited parts from Business Montreal. Surprise, Maxime Bernier is showing as well as he is at this point, considering, uh, you know, his past and, and, and things that happened with people he chose to, uh, to accompany? Um, people make mistakes sometimes. Uh, he has recovered from that when uh, he resigned as Minister of Foreign Affairs after that uh, ordeal with uh, with Ms. Coriar. Um, he sat a little bit on the back bench and then he came back as a junior minister of, uh, of small business. He made his way out, but this is all about uh, the Conservative Party. I mean, uh, um, people's memory in politics are, uh, are very short and uh, it goes back money, memberships, and uh, and appealing to people. Uh, I was so surprised that many people don't know about the ordeal of uh, of uh, Maxime Bernier uh, within the Conservative Party. I mean, this is something that um, just slipped their, their mind. Nobody focused on it. And uh, the media left that story a long time ago so that when the people are not picking it up. What do you think Lisa Raitt's chances are in this race? Um, I believe after that website, they are going to be close to none. Really? She, she just opened a can of worms. And you think this is, in fact, done her more harm than good? Uh, absolutely. Nor El Kadri has been with us, professor at the Telfer School of Management, University of Ottawa. Nor, as always, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you very much. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.